outside. En 1997, después de 150 años de historia en ING, decidimos repartes y que nos ha convertido en un banco director grande, el más grande del mundo. No serás un cliente. You're now listening to the Lion Eyes podcast. Podcast. I'm your host, Arturo León. Welcome to the 21st Century Radio Hour, the podcast. Today is May 29th, 2015. This is our ninth podcast. Our product guaranteed today, words will be said. Sorry it's taken us so long to record another full Lion Eyes podcast. I think it's been around three months. However, we have been busy. I hope you've gone to our website and enjoyed the updated site that we have and all the new content. And hopefully you've been enjoying the cub size editions that have come out since then. We've gotten some great feedback about those and I hope you're enjoying them as well. Today, we're going to be on a soapbox. We will be informed about Cuba and her history. It's a part of a trilogy podcast that will include an interview with my dad in part two and a reflection during part three. After a quick word from today's sponsor, we're proud to present part one, A Cuban History. Orbis Wood Mill. If you can use it, we can make it. Specializing in everyday needs such as bars, stools, Workbenches, tables with the mass of a baby elephant, and of course, benches to shit on. Our handmade products are done with only the finest American lumber. And we keep jobs here in the good old USA by making everything here in America by real Americans with minimal immigrant labor. Our products are guaranteed for life or until you move. We also make lamps, and if you're funny or a pretty woman, we may also have hand-rolled cigars and unique flavored beer. We're located in a basement somewhere. Just ask around. Our name recognition speaks for itself. That's Obis Woodmill. Wood, you can trust. Back to the podcast. This is a story about Cuba. Lying 93 miles from the United States of America, it's the jewel of the Caribbean. Unknown, lost in time, and mysterious, 
this island nation is about to be reintroduced to American citizens. Cuba's history is one of outside control and occupation. Its future doesn't have to be. The Western world first discovered the archipelago nation in 1492 by history's biggest con man, Christopher Columbus. Even though it was inhabited by natives, the island was claimed for the Kingdom of Spain and would remain under Spanish rule until the Spanish-American War in 1898 and then become a de facto U.S. protectorate in 1902. In the year 1511, the first prominent Spanish settlement was founded by Diego Velasquez de Cuar. The native Dayano nation was soon put to work under his feudal-like system, the difference being the Dayano people could not behead their feudal lord for failing to protect them. Side note, don't let this discourage you from feudalism. It's an interesting form of government. But, like a bad date turned worse, the Spaniards brought with them enough Eurasian infectious disease to make a plague-stricken brothel proud. Combined with murder, rape, and generally harsh conditions, the Dayano people were nearly wiped out. Really classy, Spain. Smallpox broke out, and those that survived dealt with a measles outbreak in the year 1529 that killed two-thirds of the remaining natives. Fast forward 225 years to 1754. Cuba trades its siestas for tea time, which is to say Cuba goes from one colonial ruler Spain to another, Great Britain. Due to the effects of the Seven Years' War, which, interestingly enough, lasted closer to nine years. Even though it was primarily a war between Great Britain and France, the war was, by all accounts, a world war. Oddly enough, every country had a different name for this war. Here in America, George Washington made his military name and endeared himself to the people of Pittsburgh during this time in what we called the French and Indian War. So, back to Cuba. It's still not free. Great Britain begins an assault on the Spanish Caribbean island due to Spain's alliance with the French who, as I said, was at war with Great Britain. In 1762, five British warships with 4,000 troops landed at Havana, guarding a quick surrender of the city. The British then set up trade with their own North American and Caribbean colonies. The trade transformed Havana and western Cuba, bringing in a variety of goods and culture that the city had lacked under Spanish rule. Unfortunately, the British also brought with them thousands of western African slaves, to transform the sugar and tobacco plantations. This would have a lasting and immeasurable effect on Cuba's culture. The most obvious of these effects would be on Cuba's positive transformation into a beautiful Afro-Hispanic nation. The blending of cultures can be heard today through its music. In each type of music, you can hear the influence of the African percussion. Here's an example of the salsa. The Mambo
and of course, the cha-cha-cha. Now, back to the story. And just to refresh your memory, Cuba is still not free. There, you're caught up. So, in the 1820s. Actually, can I stop and comment that I just skipped over 58 years like it was nothing, and before that I breezed over 225 years of uninterrupted colonial Spanish rule of Cuba? Pretty much the annihilation of the Diano people happened in between paragraphs. We spend so much time worrying about these tiny little things in our daily life, and yet history just skips over like 15 generations of people and not a word. So stop worrying about the small stuff. Call your mom and tell, you, tell her you love her. This segment sponsored by Moms Everywhere. So, anyway, in the 1820s, Cuba remained loyal to Spain while the rest of Latin America began rebelling against their colonial ruler. This begins a trend of Cuba needing an international power as a, shall we say, sugar daddy to help the country. Finally, in 1868, Cuba begins a nearly 100 year of rebellious endeavors, creating a revolutionary spirit that is still a dominant part of the Cuban DNA. Sugarcane planter Carlos Manuel de Cespedes freed his slaves on the condition that they fight to overthrow Spanish rule of Cuba. In December of that same year, he decrees the condemnation of slavery, but only in theory. He definitely still supported fellow plantation owners who had slaves, like George Washington had done here in America, or Thomas Jefferson, even Lincoln to an extent. But we're talking about Cuba here. So back to Cespedes. He further declares that any slaves who were presented by their masters for military service in the rebellion would be declared free. The conflict that followed is referred to in Cuban history as the Ten Years' War. It's worth noting that in these battles, 2,000 Chinese indentured laborers joined and fought for freedom with the rebellion. In the middle of this war, slavery was abolished. However, slaves would not be completely freed until the 1880s. The Ten Years' War ended in... If you guessed in ten years, your answer of 1878 is right. This war was actually properly named, and at its end, Spain promised greater autonomy to Cuba. From 1879 to 1880, Cuban patriot Galicio Garcia attempted to start another revolution referred to as the Little War. However, there wasn't the same uprising and support as seen in the Ten Years' War, and it failed. Enter into the picture the one and the only Jose Marti, founder of the Cuban Re Revolutionary Party, poet, and national hero. Here is Cuban legend Celia Cruz singing Guantaramera, arguably the most recognizable song from Cuba, which contains Jose Marti's well-known poem, Cultivo una rosa blanca, or I have a white rose to tend. Blanca en junio como en enero, cultivo una rosa blanca en junio como en enero para el amigo 
Esmeralda José Martí started the party while in exile in New York City in 1892. Martí traveled to Monte Cristo, Santo Domingo, and throughout Latin America in support and advocacy of Cuban independence from Spain. Martí wrote extensively about his ideals of a free Cuba. When fighting began back in Cuba in 1895, Martí returned as quickly as possible to his homeland in order to join and lead in the fighting. He was often criticized by other military leaders that he lacked battle experience. Driven by that criticism, he led a small raiding party during the Battle of Dos Rios on May 19, 1895. While wearing his traditional black jacket and riding his white horse, he was shot and killed. His death cemented his status as a martyr and national hero. It would be inappropriate at this time not to mention heroes of this era, General in three uprisings, Galixio Garcia, Dominican-born and Cuban Generalissimo, Maximo Gomez, and Antonio Maceo. All three men are heroes of the Cuban independent movement. Marceo, also known as El Titan de Bronce, translated to the Titan of Bronze for his skin color, and El Leon Mayor, roughly meaning the bigger or major lion for his size, may loom larger than any other figure of this time besides Jose Martí. While Maximo Gómez was famously only shot twice in two wars, Maceo was shot 29 times. He survived the first 27 shots while fighting up and down the Cuban countryside, at no point ever slowing down and seemingly portraying a sense of invincibility. The 28th and 29th shot, however, would prove fatal. His importance and reverence among the troops was so great that Maximo Gomez's son, Lieutenant Francisco Gomez, would jump in front of the slain Maceo in order to protect his body from being mutilated. Francisco was shot and killed by machetes. Both men had died and were abandoned before the Spanish soldiers realized who they had killed. Now, this is where things get interesting, or shady. Pretty much things just get shady from here on out. A new cast member in this production of a podcast, A Cuban History Part 1, needs to be introduced. You know her as the United States of America. In order to protect their interest and with authority of the Monroe Doctrine, the United States of America sends the USS Maine to Havana. Things happen, yada yada, don't ask questions, but the ship blows up. Three-fourths of the crew is dead, the ship sinks, and the United States goes into high gears banana mode. The short story, according to the U.S. media, Spain was to blame. Right, Gwen? Uh-huh. And in the media, the cries begin. Let's go to war. Adventure. Spoils. Fighting a dictatorial rule while establishing a military presence with no timetable for withdrawal? Sound familiar? The United States and Spain declare war on each other, beginning the short-lived Spanish-American War in 1898. Like 90 days short. So, without boring anybody too much, it's important to note the direct lineage from the Monroe Doctrine to the Bush Doctrine. 
In its essence, the Monroe Doctrine states that no European power should claim a presence in the Americas and that we are the power and protector of this side of the world. The Bush Doctrine is that idea but extended outward as a no world power can claim a presence that will harm America or its interest. God bless small government. Also worth discussing is the rise of yellow journalism and the influence that Joseph Pulitzer and William Hearst had in us going to war and shaping the 20th century. Yellow journalism is of course the use of sensationalized stories and catchy headlines over actual fact-checking and important worthwhile news. Pulitzer was the publisher of the New York World Journal and Hearst the publisher of the New York World. To better understand the power and magnitude of William Hearst, I would recommend watching Citizen Kane. And to understand the power and influence of Joseph Pulitzer, look no further than the first school of journalism at Columbia University and its annual award to journalists, literature, poetry, history, drama, and music. It's a little award called the Pulitzer Prize. If you'll indulge me to pause here and to say that Citizen Kane is, in my opinion, one of the best movies of all time. It's revolutionary in its direction, and no matter what people say, it still holds up to this day. For those detractors of the film, I can only recommend that you see it as it was meant to be seen on the silver screen. As for Rosebud, pay attention. Another person was, in fact, in the room. Is that really your idea of how to run a newspaper? I don't know how to run a newspaper, Mr. Thatcher. I just try everything I can think of. Charles, you know perfectly well there's not the slightest proof that this armada's off the Jersey Hello, coast. Hello, Mr. Bernstein. Excuse me, Mr. Bernstein. Can you Payne. prove it isn't? This just Mr. Bernstein, in. I'd like you to meet Mr. Thatcher. I'll just go. How do you do, Mr. Thatcher? Leland, uh, Hello. Mr. Thatcher, my ex-guardian. We have no secrets from our readers, Mr. Bernstein. Mr. Thatcher is one of our most devoted readers. He knows what's wrong with every copy of the Inquirer since I took over. Read the cable. Girls delightful in Cuba, stop. Could send you prose poems about scenery, but don't feel right spending your money. Stop. There is no war in Cuba. Signed, Wheeler. Any answer? Yes, dear Wheeler, you provide the prose poems. I'll provide the war. That's <laughs> fine, Mr. Kane. Yes, I rather liked myself. Send it right away. I, I said, are we going to declare war on Spain or are we not? The Inquirer already had. You long-faced, overdressed. I am not overdressed. You are too, Mr. Bernstein. Look at his necktie. Let's have this song about Charles. Mr. King. Now, for everybody wondering why the long pause and dwelling on this three-month war the United States was a part of, the Spanish-American War sets up the 20th century like no other singular event did. Now. The Industrial Revolution and Europe's powder keg were a culmination of events rather than one singular event, so don't get sassy with me. If we look around now at the 24-hour news cycle, the fame of Theodore Roosevelt, the Cuban-American relationship, the rise of American military might, our frame of thought on military occupation, the contentious but working relationship between Union and former Confederate states, all can trace itself back to one event. Now, a bit of trivia. Did you know that four United States presidents, Polk, Buchanan, Grant, and McKinley, tried buying Cuba from Spain? And that the Spanish-American War was declared on the 52nd anniversary of the Mexican-American War? Another war in which the United States attempted to buy land from a Spanish-speaking country? In that case, 
we offered Mexico $25 million for the Texas border, California, and New Mexico. To which Mexico said, no, that's a really stupid offer. And we said, okay, we hear you, but you shot at our troops. And Mexico said, no, we didn't. They crossed into our border and shot at us. And then when we caught up to them while defending ourselves, they had run back into what you claim is U.S. soil. To which we said, potatoes, potatoes. And we declare war. And then we easily won that war. A war that just happens to be where many famous names of the Civil War cut their teeth. We then signed a peace treaty which ended that war. We got California, Nevada, Utah, New Mexico, most of Arizona and Colorado, and parts of Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, and Wyoming. Mexico got $15 million in reparations, and we also forgave a $3 million debt. But look, America. We would never sabotage the USS Maine. Or could we have ever known about Pearl Harbor? Or did we make up weapons of mass destruction in Iraq? No, 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 no. Not us. Anyway, enough with the trivia. Back to Cuba. And just to remind everyone, still not free. After the Spanish-American War, Spain and the United States signed the Treaty of Paris, by which Spain ceded Puerto Rico, the Philippines, and Guam to the United States for the sum of $20 million. Sound familiar? Cuba was given autonomy, but only as United States protectorate. This gave the United States an ability to insert itself into Cuban politics. And then, finally, in 1902, for the first time in its history, Cuba gained formal independence from the United States. So for those of you keeping score at home, Cuba has been under Spanish, British, and American rule. However, under the newly named Republic of Cuba's new constitution, the United States retained the right to intervene in Cuba affairs and to supervise its finances and foreign regulations. Under the Platt Amendment, passed by the United States Congress, the United States leased Guantanamo Bay Naval Base from Cuba, first for $2,000 for 31 years from 1903 to 1934, and then an extra $4,085 for lease starting in 1938 and ending, well, when we won. Those are some great terms. So let's take back that Cuba finally being free comment. In fact, let's take it really back. Cuba's first free election, disputed. Their first president, Senor Tomás Estrada Palma, overthrown by the War of Independent Veterans. The official Cuban military was too weak to defend itself. And or, mainly, the Cuban forces from the revolution were that good. I mean, if they were half as badass as the aforementioned generals, they probably were that good. And of course, per the Cuban Constitution, the United States intervenes. And by intervenes, I mean occupied the country and named their own president. Classic free country happenings. The legacy of that new president, a Mr. Charles Edward Magoon, was one of political and social corruption. It's not really a surprise that his tenure in Cuba was corrupt when Mr. Magoon's bread and butter in America was, in fact, political corruption. His short time in Cuba was marked by overspending, his finagling to make sure the hot topic of that day, which was removing and examining the USS Maine, didn't happen until after his term, 
and lastly, the awarding of a series of Cuban contracts to American companies receiving bids over Cuban companies for projects on Cuban soil. While his overseeing of 2,000 miles of road construction, defeating the remaining Cuban rebels, and reorganizing the Cuban military made him popular in America, Magoon was never able to shake his reputation with the Cuban people as a corrupt politician. Following Magoon, and by the way, could they have picked a more ridiculous American-sounding name than Charles Edward Magoon? So, anyway, after Magoon... What takes place from 1908 to 1933 is a series of weak, corrupt presidents, and a time in which America factors as the driving influence in Cuban society. The Roaring Twenties in America brought an influx of tourism that led to American-owned hotels and businesses booming along the shore. This led to a rise in gambling and prostitution in Cuba. The fall of the market in 1929 and subsequent Great Depression led to a dramatic fall of sugar prices, social unrest, and a repressed Cuban middle class. In 1933, the Cuban government was once again overthrown, this time during the Sergeant's Revolt. A five-man executive committee led by Sergeant Fulencio Batista took power over the country. Batista would then loom over Cuban politics until his exile in 1958. After a new constitution in 1940, Batista legitimately was voted in as Cuba's president. As the constitution called for him to do, Batista actually stepped aside in 1944. A series of puppet presidents that mostly answered to Batista were voted into office. And then, after losing a presidential election in 1952, Batista overthrew the government a final time in a coup d'etat. From this military city, where I had to return, forced by circumstances, and driven by my love for my city, to renew a new gesture shoulder to shoulder, we should strive to work in harmony, spiritual, for the great Cuban family, and to feel in this country, how Martí wanted Cubans and brothers, men and women, united in the same ideology, in the same hope, in the same illusions, for the progress of democracy, liberty, and justice. At this time in Cuba's history, the island nation boasted a prosperous middle class and arguably the best living conditions in all of Latin America. Due to Batista's handling of the middle class, the hold unions had over labor, the creation of a huge disparity between the working and upper class, and the infiltration of American influence and mafia bribery of senior officials, the 1950s saw a rise of unrest in Cuba. In 1953, a group called The Movement led an attack on the Moncada barracks. The attack failed spectacularly, and its leader, the charismatic lawyer from Havana and prolific speaker, Fidel Castro, along with others in the movement, were jailed. It was there that Fidel wrote his historic History Will Absolve Me manifesto. In 1955, in order to gain favor with the public, Bartista gave amnesty and freed members of the movement. Fidel returned to Havana 
giving a series of speeches against the current government and eventually fled later in the year with his brother Raul in order to escape arrest. The Castro brothers traveled to Mexico to begin planning what is now referred to as the 26th of July movement. In 1956, Fidel Castro begins his overthrow of the government, which started with 82 fellow revolutionaries. The group got its name from the failed 1953 barracks attack, which occurred on, you guessed it, July 26. This group brings to prominence in Cuban lore revolutionaries such as the aforementioned Fidel Castro, his brother and now current leader of Cuba, Raul, Argentine doctor Ernesto Che Guerrera, and Camilo Cienfuegos. From 1956 to 1959, Cuba would be thrown into revolution. Most of the fighting was done guerrilla style. At its height, the revolution claims to have had over 800 troops divided into three columns, led by Fidel, Raul, and Che. The revolution was successful not only due to Fidel's revolt, but also greatly aided by other anti-Batista groups and the 26th of July movement revolutionaries who had stayed in Cuba and gained support in the urban areas during Castro's imprisonment and self-imposed exile. I saw an interesting thing happen here. A rebel was being arrested by the military police. And rather than be taken alive, he exploded a grenade he had hidden in his jacket. He killed himself, and he took a captain of the command with him. The right, Chinese rebels know their lunatics. Maybe so. But it occurred to me, the soldiers are paid to fight. The rebels aren't. What does that tell you? They can win. Scholars speculate that the revolution's success was due in greater part to these other rebel groups than to Castro himself. Of the 82 revolutionaries that landed on Cuba in 1956, only 20 would make it out of the initial battles in the Sierra Maestra Mountains, and roughly only 12 would live to march onto Havana with Fidel on January 1st, 1959. Distinguidos Distinguished representatives, we speak frequently of human rights, but we have to speak of the rights of humanity. Why do some cities go barefooted so that others drive in luxury automobiles? ¿Por qué unos han de vivir 35 años? Why should only live para que otros years, vivan 70? So that others may live to 70. ¿Por qué unos han de ser miseramente pobres? Why should some be miserably poor? Para que otros sean so exageradamente ricos. Others can be excessively rich. Hablo en nombre de los I niños que en el mundo no tienen un pedazo de pan. That don't have a piece of bread. After the 1959 parade into Havana, Fidel Castro, who had been hailed, even by the United States of America, as moderate and sensible, soon took full control of the Cuban government and let his Marxist-Leninism beliefs dictate his rule. After finally ending a series of uprisings against him, Fidel Castro's Cuba was a socialist state that strongly aligned itself with the USSR. Secondly, it is clear that this nation, in concert with all the free nations of this hemisphere, must take an ever closer 
and more realistic look at the menace of external communist intervention and domination in Cuba. The American people are not complacent about Iron Turk curtain tanks and planes less than 90 miles from their shore is less a threat to our survival than it is a base for subverting the survival of other free nations throughout the hemisphere. The United States has had an embargo on the country since 1960, and the country has been plagued by poverty and a stagnant society since. The two defining Cuban moments that linger in the American ethos occurred soon after. The Bay of Pigs, the failed plan concocted under Eisenhower and executed under President Kennedy, occurred on April 14, 1961. In October of the next year, Cuba was part of the Cuban Missile Crisis, a standoff between Kennedy and Khrushchev of the Soviet ballistic missiles being housed and sent to Cuba. As promised, has maintained the closest surveillance of the Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. Within the past week, unmistakable evidence has established the fact that a series of offensive missile sites is now in preparation on that imprisoned island. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. Besides Castro, two of the more well-known revolutionaries, Che Guevara and Camilo Cienfuegos, would suffer harsh and mysterious deaths respectively. Guevara would leave Cuba and attempt to spread the revolution across Latin America. He would meet his death in Bolivia after a coalition of Bolivian troops, the CIA, and many suspect Fidel Castro himself. Cifregos would die in a mysterious plane crash, the plane never to be found. Many suspect that Fidel had the plane crashed due to concerns Cifregos had with the course of Cuba after the revolution. Of the two men, Che would emerge as the symbol of the revolution. The 1968 photograph of his face has been called the most recognizable picture in the world. Every morning, Cuban school children begin their day by pledging, we will be like Che. The CIA was known to have feared Che Guevara more than any other Latin American revolutionary and considered him a grave threat to America and interest in the region. Many world leaders, among them Nelson Mandela, had claimed Che to be a hero. However, many Cuban immigrants see Guevara as a symbol of death. To them, he will always be the butcher of La Cabana, a troubled figure in history who was a doctor and yet a murderer, a revolutionary and yet a dictator, articulate, well-read, and a student of literature who also supported suppression and censorship when needed. Caricatures of Cuba post-1959 is the Cuba that Americans have the most exposure to. Popular culture has used the Bay of Pigs and the Cuban Missile Crisis enough that the average American has at minimum heard of these events. However, there is no substantive understanding of the island. Ask an average American what else they know about Cuba. You've got to make the money first. Then when you get the money, you get the power. Then when you get the power, then you get the woman. Scarface, cigars, communism, 1950s cars. Overlooked is that since the Dayano people of the 15th century, Cuba is a country that has never truly been free. 
The island has been in constant flux since the dictatorship of Batista in the 1950s, and some will argue that even since America became a strong presence in Cuban society in 1902. The struggle of countless patriots murdered by the Batista and Castro regimes are overlooked and underknown. The culture, often lumped in with other Latin American countries, undermining the ethos of betrayal, resentment, and loss of many immigrants. But Cuba is so much more. Her people are resilient, passionate, artistic, innovative, and strong. The culture is vibrant and bright, deeply rooted in the blending pot of Cuba's Afro-Hispanic culture. And her people have a million unique stories to tell. So stay tuned for part two for one of those stories. A story of a lost country, immigration in a new world, memories in the United States Marine Corps. This is the end of a Cuban history. To be continued in part two, an immigrant's tale, an interview with my father. I want to leave you with an artist to watch, Desi Arnaz. He was the first of only three Latino men to have had their own television show here in America. Freddie Prince Sr. and George Lopez are two and three, respectively. Desi Arnaz changed the TV studio system and was behind the idea of the three-camera sitcom, syndication, and owning your own product, as he did with Desilu Productions, his company with the wonderful, hilarious, and comedical genius, Lucille Ball. So ladies and gentlemen, remember to download us on iTunes or go to www.lioneyespodcast.blogspot.com and listen to us there. Or follow us on Twitter, at Lion Eyes Podcast. Have questions, concerns, want to see things change, you have an input, anything, email us at lioneyespodcast at gmail.com. Like us on our Facebook page, which is up and running. And, of course, head to www.freerevolt.blogspot.com for more content. And also, stay tuned for part two, an immigrant story. Remember, tacos are open-faced burritos. Thank you for listening to part one of Cuban history. Until tomorrow, good night.